Because we, we naturally feel guilty that we don't pray enough, we don't pray right, we, we don't appreciate the way we pray. And yet at the same time, prayer is one of those things that uh, we find very sweet when you're in trouble or facing a trial and you hear someone say, I have been praying for you. And they specifically articulate how they have been lifting you before the Father in a time of great need. You're comforted, you're, you're, you sense a degree of healing from these people that are, that are caring for you in that manner. And so it, prayer can often be sweet and sour, if you will. And I, I, I think Paul's going to try to bring those together here in this prayer to the church at um, Thessalonica. And, and, and Paul is really praying for a church here in our passage. He's lifting up a church. In fact, Matthew Henry said he's praying for the prosperity of their souls. So Paul is praying in a way that he wants the soul of this church to be developed incrementally, bettered. Uh, before that great day. And we're going to look at two parts of this prayer. First, there's kind of a precursor to prayer, that is the heart of Paul, before we talk about the petitions of prayer, which come from the mouth of Paul. So we want to look at two things. Where's Paul's heart in that? And then how it gives birth to the petitions. It is a pattern. I mean, Paul did write this for us. God, by his own grace, inscripturated this so, so we can look at this and learn from it and perhaps... And my, my hope is that while you may not have prayed for this church, uh, perhaps you do pray and you pray for many things, I would encourage you to pray for our church in a similar manner as Paul prayed for this church. So if you turn with me to uh, Thessalonians, the first book, chapter 3, verses 9 to 13, and I'll, I'll read it for you, 9 to 13 in the third chapter. He says, For what thanksgiving... Can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly day, or excuse me, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Now, we're going to look at two things, as I said, kind of the precursor to prayer. What fuels prayer? And, uh, and I want to give you a little background here that you don't know from, we haven't covered the first two chapters. But Paul does, as Nick kind of initiated, Paul does have a passion for this church. He loves this church. He planted this church. If you were to go back to Acts 17, verses 1 to 9, you would find out him traveling to Thessalonica and preaching the gospel. And they heard the gospel and they believed. And not only did they believe, but Paul says that he, he saw that the power of the Spirit had come upon them because they turned from their idols. So you have these pagans worshiping idols. They hear the gospel of this Jesus Christ taking flesh and living and dying and being raised. And, and, and they believe, and a church is planted, and they begin to exhibit faith and love to the saints. In fact, the church grew so powerfully and so quickly that the areas around them began to hear about that church that was growing so well. Paul had more than just an excitement over the planting of it. He had a deep concern. He had a deep affection, I would say. In fact, in the seventh verse of the second chapter, he does speak about a nursing mother with her own children. Now, I don't know that you're going to get a tighter bond there. It's not just a nursing mother for children, which they did have in this time, a nursing mother for her very own children. 
I mean, there's a deep love and affection there. Or in the, in the, in the eighth verse, he says that we longed for, we desired to not only preach the gospel, but to, show our, to share our very lives with you. He says, because you had become very dear to us. Or if you go to the 11th verse of the second chapter, he says that we were like a father, exhorting you as our children. So you can just hear all this language Paul's using, that this was not a professional position. Paul didn't come and just plant the church as some itinerant minister and then peel and leave. I mean, he has heart affections. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, listen to what he says. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming. So Paul's asking the question, what are we going to be most joyful over? What are we we going to boast over? So when Jesus Christ comes, what's going to be the big point? He says this. He says, is it not you? You are our glory and joy. I mean, he has a deep affection for this church. But he also has a deep concern. Because Paul planted the church, and if you were to read in Acts, you're going to find out that they ran him out at night. He had to leave at night. He was so, so threatened. Here's this fledgling little church, planted the gospel. The gospel took root, and now its founder, its planter, gets pulled out. He's concerned. He's nervous about them. He's concerned about their spirituality. Is it going to hold? Is it going to take? Pastors worry about their churches. Are they going to thrive in times of difficulty? In fact, we read in the beginning of the third chapter, he says, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind alone, and we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in the faith that you would not be moved by these afflictions. The church was now coming under persecution as well. For this reason, when we could bear it no longer, I sent to learn of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul's nervous. He's concerned over this church. Why do I say this is a precursor? Well, because the affectionate concern that Paul had for the church moved him to pray. In other words, as you and I move in a sense of growing affections for one another and a deep concern for one another, prayer is a natural response to that. I mean, prayer isn't to be this duty and burden that I'm going to put upon you so that you walk out of here with greater guilt. I don't want to do that. I don't want to give you ten practical ways to pray get colored pens and get a special devotional Bible. And and all those things may have a place, but that doesn't incite prayer. It doesn't encourage prayer like your passion for one another. True affection and true concern over the nature of one another in this church. That's what will move you to greater prayer. And so it does kind of beg the question, do we have that kind of affection for one another in this church? I mean, do we rejoice over the grace of God that we see in the lives of other people? Are you burdened by the struggles that many of us have in this church? Do we even know them? I mean, do we know the marriages that are really troubled, or are we kind of insulating ourselves so that no one really knows what I'm going through? Now, I I understand that we live in an age where transparency is being held up as a a high virtue, and we've got we to gotta display it all. And everybody's coming out of every closet available. And everybody's telling everybody everything. I'm not encouraging that. But in terms of a, of a legitimate disclosure of who we are and where we are. Do we know the troubled marriages? Those who are struggling with children that are going in errant ways. Or those who are struggling in conflict in their families. Or they're trying to live a godly life, but they can't. Or they're struggling with sin. 
And, and, and if that's not known among us, if we don't have an affection and a concern, then I think prayer is going to remain a burden. It's going to remain a hardship. It's going to remain very, very difficult. We want to cultivate that in this church. You know, it, it's a sad thing in this survey done in the American Demographics. It's a magazine. The question was posed to a survey group that if you had to be put on a deserted island, who would you want there with you? 54% said their pet. Now, I, I'm, I'm all about a nice pet. If I'm on an island alone, that wouldn't be in my top three. <laughs> or my top 30, actually. <laughs> but, but what does it say about the nature of our understanding of community in this church and in our lives? Harold Snyder, a theologian in Kentucky, wrote this. He said, historical and sociological studies have shown repeatedly that churches with high belonging expectations are more vital, they grow faster, they have more countercultural impact, they last longer than those that relax the intensity of their community life. I mean, that's a precursor to prayer. If we're going to look through the series of Paul on prayer, we've got to understand that, that it's the affection and the concern that we are to have for one another that will give birth to exciting prayer. You don't need to tell a young mother who's just had a child and the child's facing a threatening illness. You don't need to convince her to pray. I mean, she, she just naturally turns to prayer. God, have mercy on us. Whenever we face these, you know, when we're concerned or we love somebody, it's a natural move. That has to take place in this, in this church. But it does require us to be vulnerable and to be somewhat transparent and willingness to disclose ourselves to one another. Apart from that, we do live these insular lives where we just don't know everybody. We don't know anybody and we don't really know. People don't know us, we don't know them, and hence prayer becomes much more of a detached experience. So that's the first thing I'd like to ask you. Do you know do you care? Do you want to have deeper affections for people? Do you want to express deeper concern for them? And what's it going to take for you to do that? Okay, that's the first thing. That's a precursor. Now let's look at the petitions of Paul. That's the first part. Here's the second part. The petitions of Paul, because I think they're instructive. Many of us, I think, struggle with prayer because we run out of things to say. And I want to give you things to pray. And so we're going to see the first thing actually is really a word of thanksgiving. Look at me in verse 9. He says this, you can hear now with the backdrop of his love for the church, you can hear his heart. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. So Paul is thanking God for this church. He's thanking them. Now, what would prompt such thanksgiving? Well, remember, as I said, Paul got driven out at night. In fact, the way he verses it in, in chapter 2, he says, we were torn away from you. You can just hear that heart. We're torn away from you. And he was forced to leave. And so he sent Timothy, and Timothy was going to exhort them in the faith. Paul was in Athens at the time. Couldn't come back. He says that Satan had hindered him. And so he sent Timothy to exhort them in the faith and to give Paul a report. How are they doing? I'm concerned. We saw them grow in Christ, and now we're concerned about where they are. So here's what... Here's what he writes in chapter 3. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you 
through your faith. For now we live, knowing that you stand fast in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? For now he lives, because he knows they're standing faith. What a commitment to a people. I mean, what an excitement over God's grace in their life that he's rejoicing over. That's it. Paul's giving thanks to God for God being so gracious that a young church under affliction is beginning to grow, even without leadership, even without developed leadership, the church is growing. And so he's thanking God for that. But notice what he does. This is what I want to pick up with you. Look at what he says. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? and for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. He's letting the church know of his excitement in God. He's letting the church know how he is thankful to God for their growth. He's setting a beautiful model for us to encourage one another over the grace that we see in their lives. I mean, can you see how this would stimulate prayer? Your prayer and my prayer is to involve a thankfulness to God for what we see in each other's lives. I mean, is there one person in this church, that their faith and their perseverance has led you to thank God for seeing it. I mean, those of you who who stayed after the service last week and saw the uh, testimonies, heard the testimonies, saw the baptism, you couldn't have not been encouraged by that. I mean, the grace of God delivering these five sinners and exposing themselves in terms of knowing their sin, leading them to faith in Christ, I mean, I just sat, I just thank God, thank you, and articulated to them how grateful I am for God's grace in their lives at different times. I wanted them to know how thankful I was to God for them. So, so Paul's showing us how to do that. Yet we thank God for his grace, but Paul's writing it in a way that the Thessalonian church would be encouraged by that. So can you see yourself giving thanks to God? for the grace that you see in one another's lives? And can you then express it to the person? I mean, think about the nature of our church in terms of our unity and joy. If we have the freedom and the ability to tell one another about the grace that we see in their lives, and we're thanking God for them for sure, but we're letting you know how I thank God for you. I mean, I, I think it would, it would engender a degree of community. It would engender a degree of love and commitment, a sense of family and belonging. That's what Paul's doing. So he's just doing that. He's writing it so that the Thessalonian church knows Paul is happy with us over the grace that he sees in us. Encouraging. That's the first thing he does. He gives thanks. Secondly, he prays for their faith to mature. Now, this is where it gets a little... I want you to look at the text with me here. Notice in verse 10, he says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So the, the second thing Paul, Paul prays for is that their faith would no longer be lacking but mature. And you notice that he prays night and day, earnestly, abundantly. Now what does that mean? A lot of people hear that and they think, didn't Paul work? Or is he just speaking about a spirit of prayer? You know, kind of he's always in a prayer mode. No, I don't think so. I think it simply means this, that that um, he either has set times that he's praying, and Jewish time, you know, they would pray three times a day, some would pray five times a day, and, he, and some would be at night, and some would be during the day. And so maybe he prayed during those set times. Or perhaps, you know, it says in chapter 2 that he worked, he was a, he was a tent maker, he, would, he worked night and day, same phrase, so maybe he prayed while he was working. I'm not sure, but he was earnest 
in praying for their faith to mature. And he prays for God to let him see them face to face. Now, a letter like this letter to the Thessalonians would have been a great encouragement to them, but to see him face to face is different. You know, when Carol and I lived overseas for a couple of years, uh, we were, uh, we'd love letters. We loved letters from home. You'd read them two, three, four times. We didn't have a phone for the, for, for the first eight months, and so when you did have a chance to talk to your family on the phone, that was really sweet to hear their voices. But there's nothing like coming off the jetway after a couple of years and seeing your family. It was, yeah, it was a long time ago, but it was a very sweet time. But still, I still remember seeing their faces. So Paul wants to see them face to face. He wants to see them face to face, not just to connect with them, but to help supply what is lacking in their faith. Remember, he was torn from them. He hadn't had long to teach and instruct them. And so he wanted to be with them to bring them to a greater maturity in the faith. And look at what he does. The first thing he does is he appeals to God. And look at how he does it. He says, he moves right into verse 11. He says, and he slides right into prayer so naturally. Now may our God and our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. What I want you to see, just kind of as an aside, is he puts God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus together in the same sentence. Two nouns, but a singular verb. In other words, he sees them as the same in equal power and authority. In the same breath, he prays to God, the Father, Almighty Yahweh, and he prays to Jesus in the same measure. You know, if you read liberal scholarship, you're going to find that they try to teach that the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ was a, a developing doctrine over the centuries. And it was this enamored church lifting up Jesus beyond his true being, making him into a God. He was just a man. But you see, Paul, this was probably one of the first New Testament letters written, maybe 50, 51 A.D., and just right out of his breath comes this prayer to God the Father, and to the Lord Jesus. Exalted view at a very early stage within Christianity. So he prays that God and the Lord Jesus would direct our way, that, that as I said, there were impediments that Satan had put up before, and, and he's, he's appealing to God and God alone, saying, knock them down. I need to see them face to face to supply what is lacking. And the word to supply means to to restore, to make complete. It was used for fishermen mending nets. It was used for a, a surgeon setting a bone. He wants their faith to mature. He wants them to grow up in Christ. He wants them to have a, a stronger understanding of doctrine and the truth of the scriptures. And he wants to get there and help them move from being a babe to being an adult. Now, that's what he prays for. He prays for their spiritual, their doctrinal, their theological maturity. Is this something that you can see yourself praying for, for people? That they would be mature spiritually? Do you realize that the most common and the most dangerous error in Christendom, or one of them, is the fact that we've bought into this idea that we need faith to be converted into Christianity, but then we just take sanctification on, kind of roll up our sleeves, and we get to work right now, as opposed to still needing that fight for faith to grow in the faith. I mean, I don't need to point out to you all the jokes about they thought, you know, when they do these biblical literacy surveys and, you know, who's Joan of Arc? Well, that's Noah's wife. 
Well, it isn't, and people don't realize it. Perhaps you just didn't realize that. The reality of it is that we're great at evangelism, but the Bible calls us to make disciples, not evangelists. And so Paul is praying for this spiritual maturity. And it's not some mystical thing that we're looking for. Your spirituality will grow and develop and mature through the means of grace that God has given us, through the preaching of the word, through prayer, through Bible study, through fellowship with one another. So we're called to pray for that. We're not just giving thanks to God for one another here, but we're praying that you would develop, that you would love Christ more at the end of this year than you did at the end of last year. And that there are means of grace that we have to involve ourselves in to tap into that growth. But what I love about what Paul's doing here is he still wants to do it face to face. He's not just praying in a closet saying to God, strengthen Christ's covenant church. He wants to involve himself in their strengthening. He wants to move toward them to be with them. That's why he says make our way, direct our way to them. Let me see them face to face. Paul sees that the church is the incubator of faith. You will not grow apart from the fellowship you have in this church. You can't do it. Now, there's an increasing population of spiritual people in our, in our country called uh, nons. They're, they're not affiliated with any denomination. They don't go to church. They will claim the title Christian, but they don't associate themselves with any. In fact, in one survey done by George Barna, in a question regarding the church, one respondent said, I am my own church. It's totally contrary. The scriptures would know nothing of that attitude. The, the church is the incubator of faith. The church is where we are involving ourselves in one another's lives. So as to develop this spiritual maturity. I, I, think, we, I think we've lost a sense of this. Now, my fear is that as our culture begins to slide sideways, that you're going to find fellowship to be sweeter. We know this is the case. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was that Lutheran minister back in the mid-20th uh, century. He uh, lived in Germany, preached in Germany uh, when Hitler rose and Nazism took over. Gospel-preaching churches were beginning to close up. The state church remained. He was not part of the state church, but he was a part of a gospel-preaching church, and they went underground. And if you read his book, Life Together, he speaks about his experience of living in a communal setting with other believers under the press of Nazism. And here's what he writes, because he writes about those people who had fellowship once, but then it was taken from them, and how much we who haven't had fellowship from us, taken from us, should appreciate it. Here's what he writes. He says, It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of the Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. He knew there was going to be further fracturing of his community. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God for his grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with the Christian brethren. That's coming from a man who was writing during a time when all those freedoms of fellowship were being removed. I had a, 
I had a, a slight experience of this back in 89 or, or probably 90, went into Czechoslovakia when we were overseas, and um, Czechoslovakia at the time was united, not separate as it is now, and uh, had to go through you know, the guards and the whole thing. The wall had come down a few months prior, but all the tensions were still high. So we were able to go into Czechoslovakia, got visas, got in, had Bibles, and went to see believers behind the Iron Curtain. We had to do a little bit of kind of clandestine driving to make sure no one was following us. Landed a house in uh, Bratislava, and, uh, and we were able to go in and encourage these believers. And you would have been amazed. You'd think that we were, we were bringing just truckloads of cash for them. They, they were just so excited to be with other believers, particularly from the West, that the West knew of their plight and, and, were, and were praying for them. And, and the time of fellowship, I still remember, it was absolutely profound. I, I, kept, I kept sitting there thinking, this is out of my box of categories. I, I don't even know this. I, I, I was only coming to understand fellowship, but now I'm with people that have truly suffered alone. And it reminds me of the need for our fellowship for that spiritual maturity. It won't happen apart from it. We want to pray for this. Especially this time, if, if culture does begin to slide more than it does, Jesus doesn't leave the throne. But it's surely going to make us more observant, more intentional, and more excited about what we have with each other. Okay, third thing Paul prays for. This is, this is a real important one. And I'm encouraged that he prays for it in this way. He says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, I want you to notice here that he says, And the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Now, I don't know that there's a huge difference between increase and abound. Maybe increase is the depth of love. Maybe abounding is how it flows out to the lives of others. I don't know. But I think the operative issue here is he's praying the Lord make you increase. He's seeking Jesus Christ to increase the love that we have for one another. Now, you and I both know that there are a lot of scriptures that command us to love one another. But he's not commanding us here. It's not a command. It's actually a gift that we're supposed to ask for. It's a gift that is part of this new covenant that the believer is part of. You know, as the Christian, so as a person moves from death to life and and from being far away to being brought near through the gospel, they, they are entering a new covenant. That's why we say a covenant of blood that Jesus' blood was shed. Jesus established a covenant between God and man. And this covenant was made back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Please read that chapter. It's beautiful. Jeremiah 31 in, in Ezekiel 36. This covenant has been established where God is going to take out our heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh, a heart that now is, it has the capacity to love. So, so the, the heart that I had prior to coming to faith in Christ my love for others always had a return policy to it, that, that I wanted to get something back, either appreciation or love in kind or something. But when, when he takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, we now have the capacity to love as God loves. As we sang, that God loved us first, so now we can love. And, and, so, and so Paul is saying we need to be asking Jesus Christ to increase our capacity to increase our love for one another. 
that it's something we're going to, the one who has been touched by the gospel that knows the forgiveness and the reconciliation and the acceptance of God, once we've tasted of that, we can now love one another. This is an important prayer because we're not easy to love. Even when you become a Christian, that doesn't mean all your foibles and all your idiosyncrasies just evaporate. It doesn't happen. We are a big enough group, we are an odd enough people that we cannot just naturally love one another. We're appealing to God to give us the capacity by the promise of this new covenant that we can truly love each other. But not just love each other, he says love for all. That our love is to kind of spill over outside the walls of this church into the community that we have a a responsibility, I would say a privilege, to in love offer ourselves for others as a demonstration of what Christ has done for us. That's the way we display the gospel. And we don't want to do it individually, we want to do it collectively. We do want ministries in this church where we come forward as a church. Nick and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, and he said something that stuck in my mind. He says, when I do a nice thing, I'm seen as great. When we, the church, do a nice thing, God is seen as great. There's something different when we move with a corporate posture in ministry to serve other people. We are loving them. God, give us a heart to love those that are not easily lovable. And I think this balances with the spiritual maturity. Remember, Paul's not just praying for your doctrinal maturity. He's looking for that to be demonstrated in the way that you love one another. That's why Francis Schaeffer, a 20th century theologian, he said that if you think, well, let me just read what he says. He says, by the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. So that's what we want to do. We want to be thanking God. We want to be praying for one another's spiritual maturity and working toward that. Like, I could ask you, who in this church are you engaged in in supplying what is lacking in their faith? If no one, then we need to find someone. And then, and then who are you loving? How can we pray for this increase in love? Can you pray for this with me? Would you join with me to ask the Lord Jesus, that we would truly love one another with a biblical love, a sacrificial, a unilateral love, not seeking a return policy with it, but just I'm going to love them out of the love that I have in Christ. Now, I will say this to you just as a caveat. This is a very difficult thing to do. If you're not bathing yourself in the cross of Christ, if you're not looking at this great love that God has demonstrated for us, especially as we have the communion table in front of us, if this isn't an object of your affection and attraction, it's going to be hard to love that way. But as you see this, and as you see God demonstrate this love, then you are able to mimic it better. Okay, the fourth thing that we're called to pray for is, uh, is holiness. And you see this in verse 13. I want you to see, it says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father, and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So he's asking for our hearts to be established. Now, you know what the heart is in Scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. The heart is not the seat of your emotions per se. The heart is really, it's something more fundamental than that. Okay, the heart 
And the Puritans had this dead on, I think. The heart is where your motives are shaped and formed. So in other words, it's not about your actions. It's about what underlies the actions. It's not even your intentions and desires. It includes the imagination that you have that gives way to desire, which gives way to action. Paul's saying, <clears throat> Father, at the core of our soul, make us holy. In other words, I'm not worried about some external conformity to some moral code. God, make us holy at the core so that the stuff at the very bottom of Tom's soul, that his, his imaginations, his motivations, that's where he would be holy. And then out of that flows actions. We don't need to tell you how to act if those are holy. And the holiness that he's praying for isn't driven by some code established by the world or Western culture. It's established by the very character of God. And you can't do this in isolation. I don't want you thinking, <clears throat> that's a good point about holiness. I really got to try harder. It's done in community. I want you to notice a little prepositional phrase here in verse 13. Notice he says, so that he may establish us. In other words, you cannot grow in holiness apart from being in a community where love is increasing and abounding. Notice in verse 12 he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless. In other words, it's in the community of faith that we're going to grow in holiness. It's being in a community where we forgive one another, we embrace one another, we accept one another, we rebuke one another, we love one another. It's in this community that we're finally safe enough to say, hey, I need help with this sin, with that sin. Please, I want to open my life to you. I want you to speak into my life. That won't take place outside of a community of love. But we need that. We need each other. Because we're tending to, we succumb to the deceitfulness of our of our own hearts and sins. So that's what he's praying for. But he's praying for this, and we're called to pray for each other's holiness in light of that day when he comes back with his saints. Uh, some of your Bibles may have holy ones. Um, probably he's referencing the angels, and he's referencing those who have departed in Christ before his return. But the day is coming, and the day is going to be glorious, and he's saying if we don't pray for our church's holiness, will we be ready? The prayer is a means of being ready to be holy when he returns. Can you see praying for one another's holiness? Can you imagine lifting up one another? Praying that God would help us put aside the idolatries of our life. Listen, <clears throat> idolatry is really the root of sin. It, 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 all sin is transgression against God's will. But idolatry is a good way of looking at it. The things that I love, the things that I set as goals in my life and I pursue... Those things are often that which displaces God from my life. And so could we pray, God, reveal to us as a church the things that we love more than you. Father, uh, reveal to our church the brevity of our lives. Why can't we, like the psalmist in the 39th Psalm, say, you know, let me see how fleeting my life is. That's a prayer. He is praying that God would let him see how fleeting our lives are. Could we not pray for that for each other? Could we not pray that we would embrace more of a pilgrim mentality? We're very comfortable in this life, but this isn't our home. This place is not your home. It feels like it to me. I'm going to go to a home. I'm going to be comfortable in a home, but I've got to keep reminding myself that isn't my home. And I need help in that, as I think you do. And so we see Paul's prayer, he, he, the first precursor. Do we have a heart for one another? Do we have this affectionate concern? 
If we don't have that, that's where we start. And that's going to give way to prayer. And then when we pray, we want to be thankful to God for the grace of one another's life, and we want to give word to it. We want to pray for a maturing faith, and we want to avail ourselves in terms of producing that within one another. We want to seek God's grace for a greater love and zeal for one another. And then we want to pray for the holiness. Now, perhaps you haven't been praying this way for the church. I'd ask you to begin with me over these next five weeks. Let's try to set some new patterns in place about how we're going to pray. Take this scripture and uh, just you know, Google it, grab it, and break down the phrases in terms of petitions. Print it, stick it in your Bible, and then begin to pray for the church. I'm going to start in the alphabet. You, you, most of you have, you know, um, address books that we give out. Just start praying for people in the church for this. And let's trust that God, as he did for Paul, will move among us, moving us for that day that comes. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin to celebrate communion. Father, thank you for your word. It's profound. It's beyond measure. Uh, trouble grasping it all, Father. Really do. I would pray first for us, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our hearts um, that our affection and our spiritual concern for one another would increase. And out of that, Father, would flow a greater zeal and desire uh, to pray for and lift one another up as we see that day approaching where Christ will return with all of his saints. And I Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.